I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and oh, I'm so glad to be joined today by Lydia Millett. She's the author of Children's Bible, a finalist for the National Book Award and a New York Times Top 10 Book of 2020, among many other works of fiction. Her story collection, Love in Infant Monkeys, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. She lives in Tucson, Arizona. Her latest novel is called Dinosaurs, which is also set in Arizona. <laughs> Lydia, in terms of subverting my expectations, I was not expecting your next novel following a children's Bible to make me really care about a white rich dude. <laughs> Tell me about your decision to, to spend time in his head, Gil's head. Well, you know, it was not a demographic decision. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, although it has been noted by several readers that this is indeed his identity. But really, um, you know, like all my books, it just was the product of a sentence and then another sentence on top of it. And then mm -hmm. um, I guess, I guess somewhere in there, uh, uh, the sentence um, the sentences added up to 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 this identity of this guy who's a white guy who's um, got inherited wealth, who is, you know, pretty much every other mainstream or sort of oppressive demographic. Uh, <laughs> but 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 you know, actually, I see this this particular character as more akin to um, a character I wrote. Okay, a little there it is. There. Perfect. There we go. <laughs> actually, actually, I see this this character as a um, as more akin to um, a character I wrote a long time ago in a book called My Happy Life when I was in my twenties, um, who was was not in any of those demographics. Who was this this very um, abandoned and forlorn and powerless 
person, but when I wrote about the um, the sort of the the protagonist of my happy life, it was to sort of inhabit this really generous and kind of non-judgmental um, mind, which was not like my own at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Gail sort of was for me similar in that I just. I just felt like um, occupying this space where this very lonely person um, had chiefly his own loneliness to worry about, you know, that that was, that was the focus of this was solitude that all of us can feel no matter um, what our economic situation or political situation or social situation actually is that this kind of this existential sort of longing for company. So that was what I was doing um, with Gil. If, I don't know if that's that seems yeah. like a pretty long long answer. Maybe you want to move on. <laughs> no, it's no, I I love it, and I I also think um, in terms of subverting expectations, he moves next door to this family who live literally in a glass house, and yeah. I kept yeah. expecting the stones to be thrown. Um, but they just kind of, they get to know each other, appreciate each other. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it is a, a fragile setup, right? but that's what, mm -hmm. that's what was so interesting to me. Cause I think, you know, I've lived in the same house in the desert for over 20 years and I don't know my own neighbors. Admittedly, they mm. live farther. They live farther from me than, than Gills do in the suburbia. Cause I don't live in a, in a suburbia. I live in a exurb, really an exurb, you know, um, in, in, in a more rural situation. But I do sort of sometimes regret that I haven't made more of an effort to meet my neighbors. The thing is that with um, with nearness also comes fragility, you know, even if you don't have literal glass glass walls. And as soon mm -hmm. as you as soon as you do know your neighbors, you're also known to your neighbors. And, and uh, there's always a vulnerability that comes with that and an exposure. Um, but of course, you know, it's the kind of double-edged sword that that socializing always is, right? That sort of, um, that risk of being near someone. Yeah, and, and in terms of the literal glass house, it's almost impossible. It is impossible for Gil to look away, like it, and no one's expecting him to. There is a drama playing out uh, across the yard <laughs> and um, and he watches and then becomes an actor, say. There's something so fascinating about um, about dollhouses, you know, how they open up or sometimes they're just split and they just have no back to begin with, or they can be a complete house and then open up. And I've never, it's it's fascinating, like just the, the miniaturization of anything is kind of its own marvel. And I think I kind of, I wanted to do that with this book where it's this sort of, this dollhouse that opens up and then you're in the cross section and you're observing. And I didn't take that to its, to its literal extreme in the book. There's just sort of a suggestion of that. Um, because he doesn't, you know, fixate past the beginning and to, to a little bit, there's a thread throughout of him seeing things that he's not sure he should see, but it's not, a, 
it's not a sort of constant enrapturement with the dolls, you know, it's more, it just, be, it becomes a little more real after that the first sort of period of realizing he's looking into this um, terrarium, you know, next door. Yeah, then he becomes a part of the climate. <laughs> All right, he goes from sort of like a, a objectifying to 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 being um, among the subjects himself, sort of, or or goes from objectifying to. Uh, um, I don't know. I guess he could also be seen as one of the uh, one of the objects himself. But it, in mm. in essence, as soon as you stop, sort of, um, you know, being being on the outside of something, you really can't objectify it anymore. Yeah. If you want to avoid boring, basic, and bland gifts this year, Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Here's a favorite thing I found on their site. It's a gift for myself, as so many of the best gifts are. It's a Thera hoodie. It's like a weighted blanket, but wearable, and I'm so glad I found it. Listen, winter's coming and I am ready to relieve my chills and my stress. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone, not the same lackluster gifts you could find just about anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash Maris. That's uncommongoods.com slash Maris for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. And then of course, on the other, to the other extreme is the uh, landscape he finds himself in um, and all of the wildlife, especially the birds who he begins to observe and slowly begins to become more qualified to talk about them and understand them. Yeah, and that, that mirrors my own landing in the desert a long time ago. I mean, I came here from the West Village and I'd always just been really urban. Um, and. Uh, and I didn't know anything about, you know, I really didn't know. And I knew that I loved the beauty of the deserts sort of the, the objectivity, but I didn't know the other critters who lived here. And, and now I do, I'm not, I'm not, I'm the opposite of like a bird watcher or ornithologist. I, I don't have the, um, the patience for detail and uh, the sort of ability to, to discriminate between subtle differences that bird watchers have, that real birders, mm -hmm. you know, 
um, and really don't have the attention span. But I know I know my local birds, which are a lot of a lot of whom are the the birds that Gil encounters, and I know those those guys fairly well. Um, but then I have like very little knowledge outside those birds, so it's very it's you know it's, they're my they're my they are my neighbors, and um, and so much of the rest of the the bird world is unknown to me. And Gil similarly is like I, I remember yeah. even like when I was younger and lived in cities, just being kind of bored by birds. Like birds seemed like fairly boring animals, you know, um, because you know, we it's hard to, you know, that they're not mammals and we relate most easily to, to, to those who are like us. Mm -hmm. And, um, but now I love them and think they're just like ex excellent creations of, of design and, um, and you start to distinguish their personalities, both as a matter of kind, like species or subspecies and as individuals, like they have different profiles and they have, you know, they have, they have personas and, um, it's pretty engaging to watch them as, as a lot of people found in the pandemic, I think like even yeah. with their, their backyard birds and their, and their urban birds, their balcony birds, you know, there was just so much there to look at that they hadn't noticed before. Taking the time to be able to stop and notice things. Um, and, and I love how Gil does learn because first it's just descriptions of these birds then it's a little bit maybe he's looking online a little bit and then he meets a real tried and true birder named Jason who educates him um yeah Jason right Jason Jason's a lot of fun and I I love so Jason and Gil meet volunteering at a women's shelter um which is a tough thing to do emotionally but also getting through all the red tape to be able to do it um tell me a little bit about Gill's kind of his rules for himself the way that he conducts himself to be um as open and as generous as possible? Well, um, he just, he's just someone who, who feels um, sort of lost in his life and um, that his sort of availability as a kind of handmaiden to others is, is kind of all he has to offer. And so he, he tries to sort of um, fit the profile of someone who would be helpful in this in this particular shelter, which is um, among a, a minority in, in, in my experience, in my experience, to my knowledge, that that actually have these kinds of male volunteers. Um, I actually wanted to volunteer at a shelter as research for this book, but I, I the pandemic intervened and I mm. couldn't do that. So it's 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 fairly imaginary, but, um, but I know that that those programs do, do exist with, with different names. And he really is just, is, he's been failing to be, he's been failing to be a volunteer. And um, so he's quite, he's quite grateful to be like invited into the, into the lives of these, these women in this, in this house. And the only other man there is, is, is Jason, who's not, not particularly like Gil and, um, but shares, a similar forlornness and isolation, uh, at least at the beginning. 
And that's um, such an interesting relationship too, because of course the rules of the shelter mean that Gil and Jason can't have a you know really deep meaningful relationship. They're they're there to literally be with the women, but maybe not interact with them so much. Right, right. They're sort of they have sort of guarding functions and and buffer functions and. Um, but Gail ends up, in a way, taking more care of Jason than <laughs> than of than of the women. Um, yeah, that's that's wonderful. And um, tell me a bit more about I. If I had to name Gil's biggest flaw, it, it would be that he is too empathetic. <laughs> which uh, we don't we don't see a lot of these days, especially in fiction. Yeah, and actually it's a it's a um, he is a sort of um, milder version of that character because the one in my happy life, who I don't remember, I, I wrote that book so long ago. I don't think she really even has a name, but but she has so much empathy that she is you know, hobbled by it, like she can't, she just becomes prey to everyone. Gil has more power in his life, and so he's not quite as um, easy to hurt as she is. But um, so he's actually a pretty, a pretty light version of uh, this is sort of extreme, extreme, extreme version of empathy that I had imagined where where you honest you just don't have defenses anymore and i think mm. that's that's quite it's quite possible for that to happen even within someone who's you know so-called neurotypical to to a degree as as gil is you know um and maybe the narrator of my happy life is is not arguably anyway um yeah extreme empathy i think i don't know i think that I think that many of us have more of that sort of negative capability than we know, uh, that sort of, you know, Keatsian notion of, of being able to inhabit other selves and other subjectivities. I think that we, many of us really have that um, sort of latent within us and don't, don't spend much energy trying to explore it. Um, I think if we noticed the forms of our empathy more, um, it might be helpful. It might be helpful to sort of follow those farther down the roads that they that they might lead us. I do think they're they exist within within most of us. Yeah. If that makes any sense, I don't know. It it does. It's um it's just so rare to encounter a character, I think, especially in fiction, um, mm -hmm. who who is that open? And and part of it, of course, is that we know that Gil has some experience in being taken advantage of and having these realizations that his interactions with everyone won't always be sincere if they know he has wealth. Yeah, and, and I've always been, I mean, I've, I've been primarily interested in people 
as characters often who aren't that open or just have a lot of blind spots um, because characters with a lot of blind spots are fun to write, right? And, and we all have them also. And so they, even if they're extreme, they remain realistic because our blind spots are so ubiquitous and we don't ever know what they are. That's the nature of a blind spot. So I've written, <laughs> I've written a lot of characters who are, they, they may be open to, to a degree or they may be close, they may be sort of social and extroverted or they may be um, enclosed and self-protective and whatever, but either way they have all these blind spots. And, and Gil has some too, certain kinds of innocence or whatever. I mean, you can't be human without forms of not seeing yourself. Mm -hmm. But he's not, he's not someone who's, you know, satirical in his lack of self-awareness. Yeah. I, I, I think the most Gill kind of thing uh, that you have him do before we actually get to meet him is that when he has um, decided to leave New York City and, and move to Arizona, he doesn't want to fly first class because that's not what he normally does and he's not going to fly cheaply either because this should be this should hurt him in some way this yeah movie. he thinks that you know there's this thing well there's this uh, uh, moment in the book about just how if you're you know if you're rich enough nothing costs anything because mm -hmm. cost is all, it's all about trade right it's all about trade-offs and and if you don't have to trade anything for anything, then nothing has a cost, but that's also, and of course that that's a form of great privilege, but it also makes things meaningless to, yeah. to, to many. Um, when you don't have to give anything, even general, when giving doesn't cost you anything, you're not generous effectively. At least you may have that net effect socially. So your generosity, right exist to others in the form of gifts or payment or whatever but to you because it doesn't cost anything there's no reverberation there's no sort of internal there, there's really very little satisfaction so Gil ends up giving his time which is the thing he has that does cost him that does mean something to him to give you know and that's and I actually think that's the most we can ever any of us give is actually always our time mm. Yeah, I mean, and regular, I, regular, regular people who don't have you know millions of dollars to give away. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he can do both. But um, I also liked that in his life in New York City, he had a couple of friends who really kind of were great examples of how you can be good or moral uh in, in very different ways um i love the the character of van alston um the brash self-admitted asshole with the heart of gold yeah i think i've i've written versions of him before in other books but um he is also the kindest version of that character that I've written, I think. <laughs> I mean, or maybe he is a different character, but I do like to, I have liked to write these just like sort of brash, harsh, like crude, crude men, um, you know, whose 
whose language is, um, you know, like a blunt instrument. I have really enjoyed that over the years. And I like those characters in real life for the most part too. You know, they're yeah. really entertaining. They're amusing. If they don't they like, if they don't actually physically harm you. They're amusing. Anyone who's really creative at, at cursing is probably a good time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> when you're hiring, you're supposed to leave no stone unturned, but how do you actually do that? Easy partner with one powerful stone turner. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com Maris to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, he is, yeah, he is, he's, he's particularly creative, it's true. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the title of the book. Gil is very much aware that um, birds come from dinosaurs. And also he is very much aware maybe even more, maybe he even oversells the fact that he himself is a dinosaur. He, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, when my, when my kids were smaller, they would um, have this sort of ongoing argument with my mother's partner, who's, who's among other things, a geneticist. And, uh, and he would always just flatly claim that birds were dinosaurs to them. And they'd be like, well, no, especially my daughter would be like, no, they're not. They're, they're not dinosaurs. I mean, even if they're, you know, have a genetic, you know, trace of, they're not dinosaurs, we can plainly see their morphologies. Well, she didn't put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's entirely different. But he always had this sort of like hardline kind of DNA historical argument. And anyway, I just, I think the interesting thing well, there are many, of course, fascinating things about dinosaurs and all the, the extinct beings that we, we've left behind. But in the case of birds, they are these like these sort of hybrids where you know there's an aspect of them has is gone and an aspect is with us all the time, even in in a commonplace way, like in a in a daily mundane way. These we see them all around us, you know, for lucky, but even in the cities, we see certain very interesting and intelligent birds that we decry as, you know, flying rats or whatever, but are really quite interesting in their own right. These things that are ancient, these beings that are ancient and, um, and gone and also present. So this sort of odd um, uh, dual character that they have in our imaginations. And we're fascinated with the extinct version too. When we're children, we're fascinated. When we're adults, scholars in our museums, and there, there's like a, 
a tremendous fascination with the bodies and um, natural history or sort of like narratives that we invent about dinosaurs. And, um, and of course, there's also a real, there's a real fascination and also a real sort of taking for grantedness of, of their, of their descendants that, that are, that are so common and every day for us in so many ways, but also of course at risk, like, like everything yeah. in the natural world. Yeah. So I like that, have... I like that, that, that bipartite identity, you know, that, that it's, that they're one thing and the other at the same time. And, and Gil does learn that, um, there are certain kinds of birds, the the rarer ones that uh, the birders like to go after, uh, who are closer to extinction than the birds that he's used to seeing, and that um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting to think that we don't really think in our, or you probably do, but uh, I don't think about birds going being extinct in in my regular oh i see a, a pigeon on my way to work kind of day right right we have the common species that that are familiar and then we have the ones that you can see like i don't know with david attenborough talking about them or or if you're a birder you can find um but i mean i love I love the common birds. I love the weedy birds. I think they're, I just always see them as, as characters walking around and, um, you know, animals are just as much characters as, as we are, whether or not they, you know, whether or not there's a language barrier between us. Tell me a little bit about that juxtaposition that the novel comes, focuses on the people and then the birds and they're, they're kind of intertwined. Yeah, but the chapters each have a bird in them, um, and uh, and Gil has like an interaction or intersection with with some kind of bird in each in each chapter, just in the course of his mostly just in the course of his his normal life because he lives on the edge of this wash, as we call them in the Southwest, so like a dry riverbed where there's some where there's some kind of wild desert kind of fragment and. Uh, and so he he has all these just kind of just small encounters and um, which he which he begins to seek out to a greater extent over time. And so they're sort of threaded through the book, as are the people that he encounters. So all of it is this sort of, you know, this journey away from from feeling alone, this finding of company, you know, uh, as I think I said to you before on another occasion, this like, it's just a, like a story of finding company, the company of, of people and, and also the company of the beyond the human, like of the other of the other creatures um, that are sort of ambient. And, and I think that's also so interesting because I feel like I've am also used to the idea of someone moves in and the couple next door has secrets and uh what kind of terrible, you know, things will they be involved in and how will they terrorize the protagonist? Um, yeah, and me. there's this, like, there's some suspense, right? Like, yeah. there's a measure of suspense here about that, but it turns out not to be the neighbors who are really the, or the next door neighbors who are 
really constitute a threat, right? There's a sort of latency in the book, right? Where you, um, mm -hmm. or, or people have said to me as as readers, you know, there's the, that perhaps you you feel this like sort of Damocles or something like <laughs> something bad's going to happen that's explosive in some way, um, but it doesn't necessarily unspool that way. Although there are confrontations in the book and there are moments of friction and awkwardness. Yeah. Um, there's not really the kind of bloodbath that there was, for example, in a children's Bible. <laughs> there's nothing sort of epic, um, uh, you know, and so there, the, the, in some ways the gun that you see at the beginning of the scene never, never really goes off, right? <laughs> In some ways, in in some ways, and 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 then in unfortunate other ways, um, particularly yeah. for the birds that Gil feels kinship with. Right, right, yeah. The birds have a hard time. Some of them. <laughs> some of them. Um, tell me about writing something hopeful in 2022 well i always feel i i feel that, that there there is there's always hope with with um every act of writing something first of all there's a hope that anyone will ever bother to read it and that's <laughs> like a big hope in and of itself right it's like a form of faith right that that this won't be for yourself alone what you're doing for so many hours um but also it's the, you know, it's the doing of things that, that is hopeful always. Any like movement away from passivity is always hope, no matter what, like the texture of, of what you're doing. I, anything where you don't um, decline to take part is, is a form of hope. Even if you're in a bad mood about things, right? Like, so hope isn't just an affect, it's also, a behavior and um so this book is about that among other things you have to behave your way into hope um it doesn't just come to you while you sit there waiting for it you know you have to you have to act your way into it um that's what acting is good for and it turns out that it's also good for other things but hope is one of the things that it's best for um mm. Yeah. So I don't know if that's an answer. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, perfect. Um, before we go, please recommend a book or two for us. Oh, right. Yes. And I'd forgotten my homework about that, but I can <laughs> recommend, I can recommend a book that I'm reading right now, which is, uh, full disclosure, also published by Norton, um, which is my publisher, but that is not why I'm recommending it because I'm very judgmental of everyone's books and I would never recommend a book that I didn't genuinely love, um, even by a friend. But this is a nonfiction book called, called Wild New World that is about, it's about the animals. Um, Stan Flores is the author and he's fantastic. It's just this epic, incredibly readable story about human caused extinctions over our history and the animals, the history of the, of all the sort of the megafauna like in the Pleistocene and um, and uh, you know the Clovis people and all the stuff that we have wrought and also really about the animals themselves. I just I really it's so interesting to read and it's 
incredibly helpful in just giving you giving you an overview because I've studied all this stuff before and I've even written about some of it. But this is like the best, most readable, fun, like narrative overview of all that stuff. And it has this remarkable sweep. You know, so that's the book that I'm really wrapped up in right now. I love that. I'm gonna have to get a copy. Um Lydia, thank that, you so much. Oh sorry. Thank you. No, not at all. Not at all. I was I was going to um, recommend also a oh. uh, novel, like a little novel that I just read by Catherine Scanlon. And, but I, mm. I can't, I think it's called Rack the Hitch. Does that, it's about like hit race trackers. It's got hitch in the title. And I know it I does. And hitch, uh... it's just a, a very slim little novel that I think is really kind of fascinating um and uh yeah and I just I just read that because someone gave it to me at a at a um like a booksellers conference and it's 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 extraordinary she sat down and um did interviews with a race tracker and sort of did a fictional transcription um of sort of the story of this woman's life and um it's I've never read anything quite like it so it, I recommend that as well wonderful well, thank you very, very much. Uh, dinosaurs out now. Thank you and so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.